Hi there, my name is Matt Furness and this is The Culture Hack, a video and podcast series that captures experiences and life lessons from those who know culture best. The goal? To help you to understand, design and change your company culture. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everybody and welcome to the Culture Hack. It's Matt Furness here from Click Culture Consulting and I'm joined today by Paula Brockwell. Paula is the founder of the Employee Experience Project, a specialist culture consultancy. Before this, she worked as a director at Hayes and as a work psychologist at DWP, amongst other things. More importantly though, Paula is a wonderful human being and I'm really looking forward to talking to her about all things culture. Welcome Paula, thank you for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me Matt, nice to see you. And you. So we'll be talking today about your experience shaping company culture. So including the the challenges that you faced, what you did about them and the lessons that you learned. But before that, it would be excellent to just hear a little bit more about your story and your background. Yeah. Um, so what's helpful to tell you about me? So my professional background is I'm an occupational psychologist um, and I started my career, I think, where most graduates in occupational psychology do, which is in assessment and selection. Um, but I think I quickly realised while I was in that, that I was a very kind of purposeful sausage you know someone who really liked impact so I'd be asked to do a bit of executive assessment and from very early on I was that person who asked a million questions about well what sort of culture um is the business got or does it want to have and what sort of leadership tone does it actually really need and what sorts of challenges do these people need to overcome to be successful and I think that instinct naturally broadened my understanding and perspective of the world and really supported me to um to kind of build a level, I think, of creating environments and ecosystems, really, organisational ecosystems where people um, people thrive, but understanding those little component parts of the influence that they have on them. So my career has really been about that, you know, really indulging in my own interest in how businesses work and what does that create in terms of end outcomes for colleagues and business, um, business experiences. So I've been in lots of types of environment. I've, I've worked for myself a few times. Um, I've worked in big wellbeing consultancy, um, worked within Hayes in the assessment and development division, um, but very quickly broadened my um, broaden my perspective out there in terms of supporting with onboarding um, building new businesses um, and building their ideal competencies behaviors and supporting them and building their culture so I've done loads of things really um, but always with that that personal interest and in seeing how things click together and making a difference mm. in, in people's lives. Mm. And it's, it's fascinating to hear your story and I think the, the trodden path of occupational psychologists to work in assessment to then do something different is, is I've seen that in, for quite a lot of people mm -hmm. I'm really curious where do you think your sort of initial interest for culture comes from yeah I think it's a good question actually it's it's really personal for me um so I'm the daughter of a dinner lady and a prison officer um and um so when I talked about this idea of being an occupational psychologist my parents were just like what, what even is this and what do you mean you know make people happy at work because for both of them the role of work was about 
paying the bills and making sure that your kids are safe and fed. Um, and it was a place that you had a laugh in if you were lucky and then you left and, and you got on with your life, really. But one of the things that I noticed growing up in that environment, I think particularly with my dad, who was a prison officer in the maze, the, the political prisoner in um, Northern Ireland, was just how much work impacted who he was as an individual and the rest of his life. And really silly things like, even to this day, if he comes and stays in my house as a, as a 44 year old, he checks all the locks are locked at night. So he goes round and does a patrol and does that. And, and I personally have no concept of security because as a child, as I went in and out of the house, he opened the doors and locked the doors behind us. So quite, quite often a, a neighbour will give me a call and say your dog's out having a wander because I've just forgot to to lock or finish clicking the door shut on things and I think it's that kind of noticing that environment and those habits that he created and still has through life and has echoed and impacted through who we were as a family but also then who I am as an individual is just really interesting to me and I think you know good work creates good lives and it creates good communities and families and and for me that's that's why culture is so interesting because it's not just about making a business successful it's about the ripples that it creates for the rest of life really so yeah it's a a really core passion because of my own lived experience around it really that makes total sense and thank you so much for sharing i think um i think on average we spend something like ninety thousand hours of our lives at work yeah and i it's therefore it's it would be unsurprising if those hours didn't shape how we turned up in the remaining hours of our lives right yeah. so it makes total sense so um so it sounds like you saw the impact of sort of just a a, a classic you turn up job with you know no a laugh at best i think you said um yeah. and how that ne sort of negatively impacted your dad and and you sound it sounds like you sort of felt inspired to create cultures where it actually enhanced who people were outside of work. Yeah, I think probably more than that, actually, you know, that environment working within, you know, working in a prison environment is a really difficult environment. But working there in Northern Ireland in the 70s, 80s and 90s, where there was a lot of political unrest, like when I look, at, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, I look at my dad and his peers. He was the only one out of his group of friends who wasn't a chronic alcoholic, who hasn't died from some sort of alcohol related um, complexity. So, you know, some of it's about the mode of work. And, and what role you choose to have it in life but in that environment truly toxic you know psychologically unsafe and damaging environment to operate within and, and an extreme version of it but plenty of people still in work live in environments that are not allowing them to thrive emotionally you know mentally from a well-being perspective um, and that has echoes into the quality of their lives and the quality of their family's lives and I think for me, I was lucky to watch those echoes happening to others. And I have a huge amount of respect and pride for my dad in terms of he fought that and he made sure that he still turned up for who he needed to be as a great parent and a great part of our family. But there were plenty of people in that environment who didn't find their route to doing that. And for me, you know, it feels really personal because some of it's about making work meaningful that's an important part of it but some of it is about ensuring that work doesn't accidentally make people unwell as well and, and impact their lives more broadly yeah i hear you and um you mentioned how that context was especially bad but you also mentioned how lots of people feel that way today so it'd be great to get what's your 
be great to get your perspective on almost the status quo of culture in businesses today. What, how would you describe the typical or average culture in a lot of businesses and how that leaves people feeling? Yeah, well, I, I think, honestly, I think the world of work is fracturing and there are almost like different, there are different kind of experiences, aren't there? There's an emerging set of businesses and companies that, um, well, I, I do think it's pretty emergent. You know, it's only kind of the last five or 10 years who are making colleague um, capacity to thrive at the centre of their strategy for business success and those environments are amazing because they're supporting that sense of personalisation, purpose, empowerment um, and um, yeah really creating environments where they understand that if people are thriving the business will will naturally prosper so for me bring on the revolution that the more we can see that great but truthfully I think the vast majority of work environments still have this very top down business needs first bottom line first or or even look at something like the nhs customer needs first where there's this sense that colleagues have to sacrifice themselves or dampen themselves or align to some predefined company values to meet the needs of whatever that that end piper is and i think for me that equation is just the wrong way round you know all of the research indicates that if people feel connected, happy, healthy at work, they are unpurposeful and valued that they will do what the business needs to be able to prosper. But there's still a big chunk of the work environment and, and organisations that culture is about, well, let's serve the business's needs and your needs are in there somewhere, but they sit we say they're side by side but actually they're not really business requirements mm. sit above that and it's your job to bridge that gap and and in really bold terms sacrifice yourself a bit to make sure that the business continues to prosper which mm. yeah it's just long long way the revolution um come for, mm. for for it being a bit different i would actually build on that point as well and say that there are also a lot of organizations who i would describe as um sheep's sheep in wolf's clothing so they they would they would say that they fit into the camp that you described around caring for their people but their actions directly contradict what they say they value yeah. and their actions are the same as the organization who actually doesn't even you know claim to care about their people um, yeah. and that's actually what matters much more than what you the type of business you say you are I yeah. could say I'm six foot four handsome and smart doesn't necessarily make it true <laughs> uh yeah well yeah yet um <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my growth spurt um so it sounds like we are still in somewhat of a culture crisis and we're moving in a, a in a direction I like that the, the revolutionary language that you used um what are the most stubborn challenges that you think that organisations are trying to grapple with in order to move towards um, a place where people feel valued, recognised, cared for, cared for and where they can do their best work? Honestly, I think you've hit the nail on the head with the wolf in sheep's clothing, really. For me, it's about that ultimate belief and will to change you know so we can say we can care about our people but if we've always got that either unconscious or conscious caveat of we'll care about you until the business needs us to do something differently or we'll be flexible unless you know within the demands of business needs etc i'm not suggesting that we we all just turn into servant organizations but recognizing i think there is a real lack of base trust and respect in a lot of organizations about colleagues motivation and intent and we don't necessarily recognize that 
the vast, vast, vast majority of people want to come to work to do a great job. It feels really good to be part of something successful, to feel like a valued and effective and you know influential part of something that's doing well. And if we feel like actually we've got to manage people through doing great things rather than just creating the conditions that allow them to do great things because they are um, inherently motivated to do that, then we're not going to make that shift. So honestly, boardrooms are full of lots of um old white people no offense but they are full of lots of old white people who grew up in the 70s and were told you know do as much you know that this is the deal we'll tell you what to do and then you'll do it and i think until we shift some of those mindsets and build that base trust um in boardrooms then actually there's always going to be that pulling back and that tendency to to probably on some level believe what we're saying when we say we care about people but there's always unconscious conditions because that base trust and appreciation that people want to do great things isn't there necessarily mm. I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a listener who might be skeptical about you, what you're saying who might be thinking well it's all good and well to look after people but if the business doesn't exist then they can't employ everybody you know, everyone might say, oh, I deserve to get paid more. And if the business just listened to them and acted on everybody's, you know, desire or need, the business would go out of business tomorrow. So how do you think business businesses can create an environment or a culture whereby people are looked after, can they are put first, whilst also keeping the business afloat and making sure that, that business commercially yeah. is successful? Well, I think that's a really astute question, because for me, it's not about creating servant organisations where colleagues just get whatever they want and that we're just um, running after people to, to kind of create those sunshine and rainbows for them. For me, it's about creating that balanced deal of this. It's about being honest about the conditions that you're going to create and then attracting the people who will thrive within those conditions and being then honest about that deal. So saying for me in the cultural work that I do, it's about saying this is the conditions that we're going to create. This is the ideal. The reason we're called the Employee Experience Project is because we anchor our work around what is the ideal experience that we're going to create? How is it going to feel here for you if you come to this business? Let's anchor our culture around how it feels on a day-to-day -day basis. But behind that feeling, what we do is create a very clear and concrete deal that's saying this is your role in responsibility and creating that experience. And some of that is about fueling the business success but also showing up and being your best for yourself and the other people around you and solving problems and creating a positive condition for yourself and then this mm. is what the organization will do in return so it's got to be a reciprocal partnership that's trust-based and respect-based it's not about saying all right Sarah I'll, you know madam I'll do exactly what you need me to do to to make you mm. feel a little bit happy and I think that's I must admit so one of the reasons in all honesty, that um, I moved away from working within well-being was seeing this kind of pendulum shift that you see in organisations where they often implement well-being culture, where what they try and do is implement well-being in the existing parent and child kind of culture. We're saying these are all the things that we'll do to look after you. And it creates a sense of elevated expectation and need. And colleagues are saying, well, you know, my chair is mostly comfortable. But it's not quite. So I need you to spend another 800 quid on a chair, even though you've just bought me one or I, I, I don't really feel at my best on a Thursday at 4.30. So even though the business needs me to be in a really important client meeting, I'm not going to bother. If you mm. teach people that 
you are there to meet all of their needs. That's how they'll respond. If you mm. respond in a reciprocal, trusting relationship that's saying, I'll help you in this way, but this is what I need you to do. You're more likely mm. to create mm. that partnership. So in short, it's about building partnerships for my for my world. Yeah, I love that. And it makes me think of a few things that I've done in the past. So I'm delivering a workshop next week. And one of the things that I'm doing is um, at the front end with the person that I'm co-facilitating with, we're setting out like an informal contract, right? Here are our commitments to you. Things like we're going to try to, we're going to try and be interesting. So our ask of you is to try and be interested. Um, so it's our commitments, but here are ours in return. And to talk to people like adults and say, is that is that okay is that okay what you're signing uh, signing up for and you can do that same thing as a business you can do that as a line manager with somebody you're bringing in this is what i intend to sort of give you as a line manager i intend to sponsor you champion you give you advice give you feedback but in return i need you to be honest with me i need you to give me feedback and so on it's almost just that adult to adult informal contract you don't need to sign anything maybe you do i don't know but it's i really like that idea of just talk to people like adults here's the deal and if that it deal does isn't working, say something, or you don't you don't have to be here. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know? Yeah, and so, I think it's. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say. For me, there is a thing about um, you know, I'm not saying square boxes for square holes, but that piece around um, you know, I know you and I in the past have had a lot of conversations about organisational values to not organisational values. I'm not a big believer in top down organisational values, but what I am a big believer in is alignment of personal values. And actually, if what's important to you, you at work isn't something that we can provide within this environment and this commercial context and operational context or whatever it may be, this might not be the right environment for for you and that doesn't mm. mean that it's toxic or it's not good it's just actually that the practicalities of what we can create isn't something that works for you in terms of your personal priorities and values mm. and those mm. those grown-up conversations are really helpful instead of trying to crowbar things in or please everyone be clear about what you can offer and then attract mm. and support the thriving of the people who can who can kind of live with that deal really can thrive in that deal it really makes me think about what occupational psychologists talk about when they talk about um, uh, realistic job previews, RJP. Mm -hmm. So when you're creating a, a job spec, you're not just trying to sell yourself. You're you're also you also need to give a realistic preview of the job because if the person comes in and feels they've been missold a dream, they'll leave. It's almost like that, but a realistic culture preview. This is what we. This is who we are. This is what we stand for. Yeah. We're not everybody's cup of tea. If we were trying to be everyone's cup of tea, we'd be a mug. Yeah. Um, and and if this isn't for you, that that's okay. Um, yeah. And I think m people are more likely to want to buy into that because you stand for something, and you're you're not trying to appeal to everybody. And if that's not for you, that's fine. Yeah. Um, so we started talking about sort of the the, the approaches um, that we can use to start to mo move towards a, I guess, a less toxic culture in organisations and, and and cultivate the right type of culture. So tell me a little bit more about when you're when you are faced with sort of toxic or unhealthy cultures what's your approach for shifting them in practice yeah, yeah well sometimes for me it's also sometimes cultures are perfectly 
healthy, healthy, perfectly fine, but they're just not productive or they're not fit for purpose for the future as well. So for me, that shift in culture cannot can be for lots of different reasons. And um, the first place I start is having a conversation about where are you trying to go in the future and what sort of behaviours do you need moving forward? And then looking at cultures to say, well, is this one fit for the future and is it going to serve you in terms of what you're trying to achieve? And I think that that for me, that first piece is about having a conversation that's less about blame, less about fix, less about having to create this kind of, pain, you know, the burning platform having to be about a pain point, which often we kind of, we force, uh, certainly in the early stages of my career, I'd start doing, you know, when I was doing cultural audits, I'd find myself looking at something saying, well, it's perfectly fine. But when I was trying to build engagement with execs, I'd feel myself disappearing deeper and deeper into, to get them to listen really, well, this, but this isn't working and this isn't working and this isn't working. And I think that negative um, frame of reference doesn't doesn't sell people because it just it promotes shame, defensiveness, etc. So the first piece for me is about understand what ideal looks like in the future, build it around something positive, exciting, because what that does is it puts shame, defensiveness off the table and it gets us excited about thinking about moving forward. And in doing that, also have some really clear conversation about that piece around the deal. What roles do we need to be playing to allow this to happen? How do we fit into the ecosystem that creates this? And, and creating a really clear vision for the future. For me, it becomes a beacon in the change that's about, well, this is what we're aiming for and this is what it's going to feel like when we get there and I think uh, what does that do that really typifies my the importance to me around fostering readiness within an organization so not just getting in and doing things for the sake of it so not just doing a load of training courses with managers and they're not really understanding why or what the impact is or having the opportunity to try those new behaviors because they're just going back into the old system but i typically try and spend some time creating the why linking that to the business's true strategic narrative in terms of commercial goals or you know, I work with a lot of not commercial organisations, so they're more kind of strategic aims and goals in terms of moving forward. Anchor the why of culture to that and where you're going and make it a key enabler of that goal. And then suddenly you can do a shed load of work around building readiness um, and shifting people's awareness to why change is important, but also building a mindset for them that's about understanding my role in change rather than looking at everybody else and thinking they change. So for me, that's the starting point. Comms, connection, coaching and creating that strong strategic narrative, which mm. when I talk to some organisations, they're like, but we just want to do some training and we want it all to, we all want it all to be different in six months but mm. I'm, I'm not the person to work with well come and talk to me in 10 months whenever that hasn't worked and we'll we'll start doing it properly is what I would say because that for mm. me doesn't shift things so start there and then the more practical traditional um, interventions around um, group based problem solving capability building training etc retooling processes and systems to allow people to do things differently do that next but make the change make sense to people first of all mm. so just to recap what what i've heard um it sounds like you start with where do you want to go mm. and cre create that 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 compelling clear cultural vision of where you want to go tying it back to where the business as a whole wants to go so you've got that yeah. strategic oversight you then figure out where is the business at the moment and therefore what's the gap between a and b you then feed it back a couple of things that i and then you 
go try and shift from A to B. Um, a couple of things that I thought of when when you were talking about, I, I really hear that sort of shame and defensiveness, and I've I've seen that in the past. I've seen businesses get that wrong and go in and try and sort of tell an or, another organization, the organization they're consulting with, what what's wrong with their culture. A couple of things that I try and hold in my mind are, are two things. One is um, uh, transparency and tact. I always try and hold that in my mind. You're trying to be transparent, but you're also trying to be tactful. Um, and it's not about being either or, it's about being both and embracing that paradox. The other thing that I hold in my mind that I find quite useful is thinking about your all relationships as an emotional bank balance, yeah. which has been around for years, but building the trust and the and the honesty and, and uh, building the trust and the respect and starting with, here are the things that are great about your culture. And, sh and before you go into the, and here are the things that we might want to address and here's the impact of doing it. And if you just rush into that without putting enough deposits in your emotional bank balance, you'll become overdrawn and they won't listen to you and you won't get any traction. So anyway, th they're just a couple of things that that where my brain went as you were talking. And then in terms of that, that um, getting from A to B, what have been the most effective types of interventions that you've seen? Yeah, for me, um... For me, the things that work best are are about enablement, really. And I think there was a real flipping point in my career. I don't know, probably about 10 years ago now, if I think about it, because the time passes, doesn't it? Where I can remember the moment, particularly I was in a room with the leadership team and I was talking about where they were. And well, I was talking about where they wanted to go. And we were we were exploring that. Well, where are you at the moment and what's the distance to travel? And I realised that I hadn't actually spoken as the expert consultant who was feeding back and hosting the conversation. I hadn't spoken for about 20 minutes and my brain was doing that bit around. Well, do I need to speak? Should I speak? What have I got to add here? But I just kind of stepped into the conversation and listened to it, you know, like peed in and thought, what's happening here? Does this room need my voice in it or not? And it didn't. The The leadership team had caught with the vision. They, they saw where they needed to go. And I, you know, I'd created the, the kind of um, that ecosystem understanding for them. But they were lifting that and taking it and starting to move things forward. And at that point, I kind of had this real moment of recognition that where great looks like is when you don't as the consultant you don't need to speak anymore you don't need to guide anymore and actually the business whatever whatever group or part of the business you're trying to influence is starting to take that forward and that has really influenced my approach ever since really I've been ever increasingly trying to find that line between guiding supporting and lifting an organization and, and building capability within a business but with that ultimate goal to very quickly as soon as possible really not being needed to speak in those rooms anymore or only needed mm -hmm. to speak on very specific and specialist things or where there might be very um, ingrained blind spots so for me I think there is a massive thing about um, that the techniques that I value most and I see work most are those where you're doing that initial comms and connection to build that awareness and build that initial capability and readiness to take this thing forward. But then where you do work to really um, activate groups to own this themselves. So so one of the things that I do in my approach is um, support action planning sprints with culture. So rather than creating a big centralised action plan that gets done by HR and they pull in stakeholders and things, which then just inherently keeps that um, culture in HR's um, world. What I look to do instead is 
work with um, the the kind of the leaders of change within the business and we try and make that group really multifunctional and multifaceted to to get a breadth of perspectives get them to commission localized action planning activities or um get them to commission localized action activities so we use kind of a sprint based methodology where they might define the problem statement but then build little groups that solve those problems through a three to six month period and basically what you're doing is lighting little fires of activation and um change and attitudinal shift within the business and that is my favorite thing to do because basically you light those fires and people do something and they're supported and they're celebrated for it and they realize that they're feeding into the culture and then they just keep doing that you know you you do you it only takes two or three cycles of doing that and people get used to that Mm. decentralized localized approach to solving the problems that are barriers to culture themselves and that Mm. for me is where the magic happens so when i see those those little fires starting to spread into a bigger fire and people starting to take those actions themselves i know i know the magic's happening and the tipping point is either there or coming and that that for me is my favorite thing to do to be honest you know all the other stuff's interesting but that is the preparation for that moment and when you see that you know you've made a difference and you're you're creating a self-sustaining culture that's going to be able to evolve and cultivate itself over time which you know that's why we're in it right you know you you want to you want to make good businesses that stay good businesses not ones that keep coming back to you every three years because it worked a bit and then it fell down and then they they need some help again what i really like about that methodology is that i imagine a byproduct of it is showing that culture doesn't sit with hr and i think that's something that a lot of people in hr really get pissed off with um that they're seen as the culture people um and they do have responsibility for oversight of the culture in terms of like cent- anything that's centralized but culture is created by everybody and leaders have a an, have a role as the stewards right and and the ultimate decision makers that shape culture perhaps more than well definitely more than anybody else including hr um and the methodology that you've just described subtly tells people and walks people through the fact that they are accountable for the yeah. culture in their bit of the business. It doesn't yeah. sit with HR and HR are supporters, champions, a centralized you know, team and uh, support um, and strategic advisors, um, but the buck doesn't sit with them, it sits with you. Yeah, and I suppose there's two things that occurred to me as you're reflecting back there. One is for me, a huge part of my work is about business partnering with HR, but also mentoring to move them through, or moving from that role of kind of steward or police um, kind of, of of good behaviour through to probably being a bit more of an informed guide where you're taking people on the journey with mm-hmm. you and you're beside them. But for me, the ultimate goal for the role of HR is that of conductor of the orchestra. So mm-hmm. each of the different instruments understand what their role is, what, what tune they need to play. But really what HR is doing is acting as that central and we're checking in Mm. we're noticing where things might shift and we're pulling bits together but actually these people you know they're experts in their own right and they know what they're doing Mm. and we're just making sure that everything is moving together so that the the ultimate tune is is one that we want to listen to really Mm. the term that i use is um air traffic controller and it sounds like it's saying pretty much the same thing as orchestra right like overseeing it it, making sure things are going in the right direction but not always necessary you're not you're not flying the planes you're yeah. not 
you're not playing the musical instruments. Absolutely. Um, exactly that. And so, so many people I meet are one man bands in my kind of, you know, in my analogy, I, I find them and they're exhausted because they're, you know, banging the drums, playing everything. playing everything at the same time. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Mm. So um, it sounds like you've, well, you, you've done a huge amount in this space and um, you mentioned uh, about five, ten minutes ago, so, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, what you wish you'd known ten, ten years ago. Oh, I think it was about your role as a facilitator and yeah. serving as opposed to necessarily always talking and creating sort of self-sustaining conversations and culture change. So um, my question is about similar to that. So what else do you wish you'd known ten years ago about changing culture? Yeah, I think the two big things for me that um, that have definitely changed the game of my um of my practice is that piece around frontline readiness, creating that base awareness and mindset. So I go on about it all the time because it is just so missed. And, you know, like I've, um, I, I kind of mentioned to you before we started, I've just launched a, a course for HR professionals on supercharging change. And the first module was this week on readiness. And the group were just like mind blown of this totally gives me um, an understanding of why I either feel frustrated that people aren't coming with me or something that feels like a no brainer in terms of implementing some training or capability just hasn't landed and flown as I hope so that idea of building readiness shifting mindsets and attitude is important but I think the other thing that's a real game changer for me is that bit around opportunity to change so you know that you'll know in our um in you know occupational psychology training that idea of transfer of learning and evaluating that on the backside of like development activities or the like is is evaluated a lot but we don't really talk about what drives transfer of learning other than in the learning moments or you know in the how do you how do you build your training courses so they're more impactful and interesting etc but a massive part for me about once you start to do especially in the moment interventions like that where you're pulling people out of real time to do something and then transporting them back you've got to make sure that in the environment that you're transporting people back into that you're mm -hmm. doing some sort of work that's about driving opportunity to change because otherwise people will come with you and they'll be massively mm -hmm. frustrated because the mindset the um, awareness the capabilities there but they haven't got the opportunity to do anything different so they go somewhere else where they stop trying or they just don't see the point in trying in the first place so for me that back end of you know and that's why I've started to use the kind of sprint based problem solving technique is then creating the opportunity to do something different in the environment so can, people can embed and experiment and be positively rewarded for using those new behaviors is massively important so mm -hmm. The stuff that I do in the middle in terms of actually getting people ready and building capability probably isn't that different to what most people did because, uh, you know, the techniques haven't really shifted that much in the last um, quite a few years, let's be honest. But they do kind of they should do what they're meant to do. But the reason they don't for me is really because those other two sides aren't done. That initial will to change and then creating the opportunity is massively important too. So those are the two things I wish someone had sat down and had made me pay more attention to the trans-theoretical model of change and said to me, look at that and think about what that means in organisations. And that would have transformed my practice much sooner, I think. If someone would have tried to sit you down and tell you about trans theoretical model of change 10 years ago 
Paula, you'd have told them to piss off. I'm telling you now. <laughs> am, am I wrong? <laughs> I had to find it myself, didn't I? I would have went, this is about individual change, not organisational change. What are you talking about, probably? But yeah. it does really, I, I must admit, um, based on some of that, I've adapted my model of readiness, which is is kind of based on the research from, from that. But um, mm. yeah, I must admit, it's not five stages anymore. It's a bit more simplified based on um, based on my own experiences, definitely. <laughs> Great. So, so the two things then. So, the first one was not to undermar, un, underestimate the the importance of frontline readiness before you get started. Sometimes it's important yeah. to go slow before you go fast, right? And yeah. Rather than trying to jump in and fix problems from from day one. Second one was around opportunity to change. Um, and I see that second one a lot. I see a lot of businesses who invest in, I don't know, a leadership program most commonly, and they yeah. go in and they say, "This is gonna, this is gonna make." leaders who you know break down silos in our business and it's sort of like it might a little bit um but if you're going to continue to compensate leaders based on their individual performance if you're going to keep like the structure of your office is set you know it's around teams if you know you don't have any purposeful ways of breaking down those silos outside of this development program it 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 it's sort of like what's that metaphor about you know cleaning a fish and then putting it back in the dirty water or something along yeah. those lines yeah. it's, it's sort of like that right you need to change the system make sure people have the opportunity to do the right thing and the motivation to do it rather than just focus on you know can they do it absolutely um yeah. so what about one big myth so something that you think is quite commonly believed in in the industry that you would like debunked well, I think it's what the example that you've just used there, that training works to solve culture, you know, that if you that if you give keep people capability, then everything will follow. But, you know, mm. people, it's not about lack of capability. It's lack of understanding mm. of um, what the impact that that the bad culture or, you know, unproductive culture is having. It's lack of understanding of our own role and the impact that we can have. And often mm. it's been really caught in you know organizational systems are really tight interrelated ecosystems and if we try to shift even a little bit we get pulled back to norm because everything is connected together so recognizing that that you've got to unhook the system you've got to pull things apart and then rebuild it the way that you want it to to get it to click together from you know i genuinely think about it as some sort of production machinery almost you know you've got to pull the cogs apart and put them in the order that you want them to be in to to um to allow it to click together and move so that mm. piece around you can shift behaviors by sending people on a training course to tell them about it just you know it's ludicrous mm. it's like it's like buying um a chronically overweight person a treadmill and thinking well you've got that now so you know you'll mm. lose weight because mm. you can walk on that it's ridiculous that's that's yeah. never that's not the thing that's stopping someone from shifting their behavior from whatever you know mm. in whatever circumstance they're in Mm, I, I I've seen that a lot in terms of um uh the difference between behaviors and skills. Like senior leaders, often, do they have the skill to be able to listen well? Yeah, put them in an interview tomorrow, and they will give that interview a hundred percent of their current yeah. attention. Put them in a conversation with their team or with um with I don't know the intern. They'll be doing their emails. They'll be doing their Teams messages. So the issue isn't that they can't do it. The issue is that they're not doing it. So skills are an important prerequisite for behavior at times, but it's not alone. And I think organizations, to your point, they need to assess if we've got a skill gap here or have we got a skill behavior gap. And often, yeah. to your point, it's the latter. 
people can do it they're just not so then the question is less let's give people the skill the question is how do we get people to demonstrate that behavior more consistently how can we create the the environment and the motivation so they do do this yeah um, and i'd i'd take it and even uh, that analogy a step further because i think there's a difference also between listening and hearing. Listening's the behaviour, hearing's the mindset piece. So, you know, I can listen to my team, but I can use my own kind of schema and shortcuts to interpret what they're saying, or I can use my own defences and expectations of the world to say, well, they would say that because of this, this and this, or, well, they say that's a problem, but I've got a housekeeper and somebody who does my ironing, so it's fine for me to commute. And, you know, someone who picks my kids, I've got a nanny, so it's fine for me to commute as an example example why isn't it fine for them and I think that extra piece about mindset is also important in terms of am I really engaging and understanding other people's view of the world or am I just using my own filter to keep understanding the world from my own perspective because mm. change doesn't happen from thinking I'm right and everyone else needs to change or needs to shift mm. we've got to understand how our own perceptual filters influence us too so I think there's mm. kind of capability or skills behavior mindsets those three mm. things have got to align to drive it through mm, and and i imagine those things need to be right in the frontline readiness if the for example if the mindset's not there people are resistant to change and think yeah. they know it all then it, it yeah. won't happen right That's your last so, absolutely so last question then um i'm conscious of your time and the listeners time so right. <laughs> what's what's a culture hack that you love so that's something that takes a little impact Sorry, it takes a little effort, but can have a big impact. Yeah. Um, so for me, one of my favourite ones to use, particularly in cultures where over-engagement is normal and that kind of busy, busy, everybody's busy, kind of that's the, the general narrative, is introducing micro-breaks. Um, so the idea of um, encouraging people to, pre to take anywhere between a minimum 60 second to kind of five minute break every 90 minutes to manage their energy and attention at work. And it's a really lovely, easy thing to implement um, that gives people a practical way to just behave a bit differently around managing, taking responsibility for their own energy and concentration at work um, without creating this massive need to be able to go for a walk at lunchtime or finish early or the like. So they're, they're a fantastic tool and a lovely kind of Trojan horse for encouraging people just to try new things so having a look at how you might be able to implement and use micro breaks if you're in that environment where you're struggling to get people to look after themselves is a really interesting thing to play with mm, what i really like about that is behavior change i think sometimes with behavior change people all of a sudden get this surge of motivation and they say i'm gonna run three times a week and i'm gonna <laughs> take and it's almost like you can't always go from zero to 60 or you can for a short period of time, but then it, you'll, you'll run out of the motivation. It'll stop happening. What I really like about that is it's so small that you can do something about it. Yeah. If it's two minutes a day, you can do something about it and yeah. it gives you a sense of control and a lack of excuses. And then yeah. you can build and you can build it up um, if that's what, you know, if you need more time, you but you've built slowly built that habit of tiny, tiny, but noticeable things. Yeah, um, like the small fire. That's my thing. Absolutely. Like the small fire. I like that. So uh, do you have any other final reflections before we start to close up? No, I think I've told you all the things, haven't I? <laughs> everything there is to know about culture ever. Well, everything my brain thinks about <laughs> culture anyway. <really. laughs> awesome. Well, we thank you so much for your time. Um, 
I, I loved having a conversation with you about this, Paul. I've taken lots of notes for my personal sort of, uh, for my personal things that I'm going to sort of try and hold myself to. So I just want to finally say a huge thank you for sharing your time and for sharing your experiences. Um, if people want to contact you, what's the best way to do so? Um, probably to find me on LinkedIn in all honesty and in there you'll find links to I've got a um, a culture change community called Spark where we share ideas both kind of me sharing out ideas a couple of times a month in terms of different techniques that you can use but also um, we're doing a gift exchange an idea gift exchange across the community in um, December so uh, you know come join me LinkedIn talk to me if you want to but come and join Spark because that community is really starting to pop it's really exciting so if you want to be part of learning a bit more about this we'd be lo we'd love to have you brilliant thank you so much paula i really appreciate your time thank you so much for sharing your your, your time and your experiences to the listener or uh, if you're watching on youtube thank you so much for tuning in if you like this episode please do listen to our other episodes for more first-hand experiences and lessons on all things culture otherwise that's all for today thank you so much for tuning in and go well everybody <laughs>